be very, very quiet. I'm making podcasts. Hey guys, this is Rish Outfield, and you are listening to the Rish Outcast. And before I play Americana by Kevin McLeod, just take a listen to those crickets. Do you hear that? There are sounds that can transport you in time. Often it's a song, right? Oh, I haven't heard that song since junior high. Or, oh, do you remember that commercial jingle? Holy cow, that reminds me of uh, coming home from school and sitting down in front of the TV and watching cartoons. To me, crickets are summer. Summer in my hometown when you opened the windows at night, let in some of that cool air, and I guess it reminds me of my youth, of when life held more wonder, I guess, when there was more possibility, when I was excited about the future, to grow up and start my life, and who knew what I would be, where I would go, what I would do. And now I want it to slow down. I want to uh, not only put on the brakes, I want to take my foot off the gas and just see how slow I can move. But life doesn't work that way. <laughs> I, 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 if anything, I think it's, it goes downhill and you start moving faster and faster. You start seeing that the bridge is out down below and you're heading downhill and you see way off in the distance that the bridge is out. You hit the brakes and they don't work. Somebody's cut the brakes. I don't know, bad analogy, I guess. So where we are right now is I just finished the last Sidekicks Journey episode and I was saving it on uh, what I call the crap top. Uh, And it usually takes three or four minutes, sometimes longer to say, oh, yeah, on these, these long episodes, yeah, they can be like 11 minutes, 12 minutes to save. And so I was like, well, what do I do? Do I sit here and, and you know, surf the internet? Or, and I, because I was editing audio, I was listening very intently to the podcast. But once I stopped doing that, I could hear the crickets outside my window. And I thought, oh, gosh, that's what I ought to do is go outside and listen to that. And I'll bring my trusty recorder and we'll do another episode of the Rish Outcast about Sidekick's journey because it's long. I, I, I warned you, right, from the very beginning that it was going to be long, that it was going to be over several parts. Um, I remember back in 2001, it was December 2001, and I went and saw... The Fellowship of the Ring in the theater. And when Frodo uh, is going off on his own and then Sam runs up after him and says, yeah, you know, I I understand you need to be alone. I'm going with you. And then the camera sort of pans or veers way, 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 way off into the distance where you could see like the fires of Mordor. Suddenly I got this feeling of, oh, this is it. This is the end of the movie. And sure enough, 10, 15 seconds later, 
then, yeah, I think there was an Enya song that starts playing and the credits started to roll. And there were people around me that were just like, what? what? That's it? What is going on? They didn't realize that this was the first installment in a trilogy of films or that Peter Jackson had, had filmed all three films at the same time. They were going to come out stilted a year apart. They just thought this was the Lord of the Rings, despite the title being, you know, the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. I remember people being surprised in that way. And, and I thought, oh, gosh, I wonder how I would have felt had I not known. Because a lot of times with like two part episodes of a TV show, they don't give away in advance that this is a to be continued, that this is a part one of two. Do they? Do they let you know this is something title part one when it's first airing? Maybe on video or whatever. You're like, oh yeah, this is the two-part. This is the three-parter. Wow. I don't know. Because I think it's more surprising when you think, how are they going to get out of this? There's only two minutes left. Rather than, okay, they're probably, there's going to be a to-be-continued coming up here. There have been episodes... I guess Star Trek is probably the show I know the best. And there were episodes of Star Trek where it's just like, wow, this is going to be a two-parter. And then it wasn't. They resolved everything in the last 40 seconds. But with this, yeah, I think I, I let you know early, early on that it was going to be multiple episodes. But I've recorded these episodes several months apart. The first two, I think, Sidekick's Journey episodes... I recorded on the same day. The third one I recorded three months later. And here it is another two months since that one. Because I knew I was going to, I was planning on releasing Sidekick's Journey in the summer. And I got this idea back in like April or something like that. But as the summer got closer and closer, I thought, oh shoot, well this is probably going to have to air in July. Oh. July is not going to work. This is probably going to have to air in August. Oh, that'll be cool, though. We'll have like four episodes in August. Oh, August is here. Um, maybe an episode can air in August? And then, sadly, even worse, I betrayed you guys by splitting it up, by running the first two sections of Birth of a Sidekick, then dropping a couple of other episodes, and then coming back to Birth of a Sidekick, which is what you're experiencing now. It's not called Birth of a Sidekick, kid. It's called A Sidekick's Journey. Hopefully you knew what I was talking about. Right now, I am... Oh, shoot, I was going to do that today. I was, uh, today was the day I was going to drop the first episode of Sidekick's Journey. Today. I guess that's why it's on my mind. But I haven't done it. I was struggling with... Uh, it was Patreon. Patreon was giving me this really hard time where it said the browser I was using would no longer support my login to Patreon. Now, maybe if you are a creator that has a Patreon account, you came up against this yourself in August of 2018. You'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember. Suddenly I was locked out of my own account. But yeah, for a couple of days, I couldn't figure out what to do. It wouldn't let me log in, which means I couldn't post any new episodes 
but then yeah, I tried it in a different browser and uh, it seemed to work fine. And so I was like, okay, well now I can do it. Even though like the steam that I had built up to publish more had evaporated. So that's what's going on with me. I realize I've been talking for 15 minutes and you're not here for that, are you? You don't care how the people around me responded to the Lord of the, well, maybe you do. Anyhow, I'm gonna go ahead and let you listen to the next section of Birth of a Sidekick, <laughs> a sidekick's journey. And uh, we'll talk on the other side and you can enjoy some of these crickets. Ben Parks had had a taste of ranger life, and now his mind was always alert, always anxious to know who was in trouble, who needed his help, who was calling out for a hero. The general store had been saving two more letters for the lean rider, forwarded, it seemed, by Mr. Colley. Salido, the rotund shopkeeper and owner of the feed store, seemed hesitant to give the envelopes to Ben, even though it hadn't been a problem before. So, while Ben was at school, Lorelei went over and picked up the correspondence. One was a letter thanking Jerome Cook for keeping a lady's brother from going to jail, or going to hell, it wasn't quite clear, and included a two-dollar bill. The second letter, though, was what made Lorelei excited. "'What is it?' Ben asked, feeling like good news was coming." They were in her room on the upper floor of the boarding house, the window open and the barest breeze making it inside. She handed him the paper, which consisted of two drawings and a map. Read. Ben read. Who are the Donovan brothers? he asked after a moment. Keep reading. He did. They robbed three trains and five stagecoaches, said Lorelei sounding almost delighted. It says here over eight, he said, wondering if she knew the men. He scanned the rest. Those two scoundrels have been spotted, ooh, just outside Phoenix. That's not far, is it? Well, farther than Gunderson, but we could go there, sure. His eyes took in the two drawings. One showed a scowling, mustached man, and one showed a smiling, clean-shaven one. They could have been twins. It was wanted posters. Among the Donovan's offenses were robbery, malfeasance, whatever that was, jailbreaking, and three counts of murder. These men are killers, ma'am, Ben said, a little of her infectious excitement wearing off. You must not have read the important part she said, then waited. Ben scanned the wanted poster. Reward, fifty dollars, dead or alive, he mumbled. That'd be for Leonard, she said, nodding. But look at the handsome one. The sketches were almost identical, but Ben looked over the other poster, the one for Johnny Donovan. Reward, four hundred fifty dollars, dead or alive, it said. Wow, why so much more for him? Lorelei guessed. Bad man, worse man, I reckon. The boy continued reading. 
The letter had been written to Mr. Jerome Cook from David Thompson, Esquire, the owner of Southwestern Railway, and he was the one putting up the reward money. It was payable at any train station or from Thompson in person in Santa Fe. You want to go, Benny? the veiled woman asked. Or should I take this one on my own? Ben felt a pang of fear, almost panic, but he couldn't tell if it was for himself if he went, or for Lorelei if she went alone. But this was his business, the line of work he longed to go into, and not unlike what Sheriff Murtry would deal with if excitement ever came back to Trueno. Yes, he said, squaring his shoulders. I want to go. She checked the main letter and squared her shoulders back. This letter's a week old. We ought to get out there as soon as we can. Okay, he said, though there was still fear in his voice. At least he could hear it there. I reckon we best practice shooting one more time before we leave, just in case it comes to that. Right, he said in a small, even more frightened voice. Thirteen. They did practice shooting, using empty whiskey bottles Lorelei had nicked from the saloon. Not the one with the player piano, the other one. And she lined them up on a ridge, then made Ben back up one hundred paces. He was struggling with it, and the shells ran out before all the bottles were shattered. I'll admit something to you, said the lady, seeing his despondent expression. I'm no good drawing from the hip. Ten times out of ten... I'll miss what I'm shooting at. But if I draw, raise, aim, and fire, I'll hit my target. Ten times out of ten? he asked, impressed. Well, six or seven. Not bad for a girl, huh? No, not bad, Ben said, though he suspected that he'd have to practice for years, not months, in order to match her. How are you with a rifle? Oh, she said, almost as good as you are, on a good day. Ben found his ears and cheeks burning with that statement. Yes, he was pretty good with the rifle, wasn't he? But good enough to shoot a man? He didn't know. But he vowed not to be afraid to try. Of course, he later remembered her words and realized she was just having fun at his expense. But by then it was too late. He knew how good he was with that particular firearm. "'Is this what your life is usually like?' Ben asked as they were on their way. They'd loaded a few supplies onto the donkey and some burritos into their bellies, and the two of them, or five if you counted their equine transportation, were headed toward Phoenix before the Treno school bell rang. "'What do you mean?' Lorelai asked. "'We were only in town for... Not even two days, and now we're riding into danger again. We didn't get paid for the last job, kid. If we had been, we could afford to, what do you call it, luxuriate. We have money, Ben said, but was ignored. Even if you're tired, Lorelai said, or hurt, or randy, or content, you go where the money's at, and you go quick. If not... Some other slinger or lawman will go out and shoot the Donovan brothers. Get that six hundred dollars first. 
It's 500, ma'am, Ben said then. Is the plan to shoot them? I thought you were bringing the donkeys so that we could take them back to the train station. They don't got to be kicking to collect the reward, Benny. With boys like these, dead's going to be less dangerous than alive. But you just keep your eyes open and your mouth closed. You'll learn something. And if you want to change things, you can when you're out on your own. Ben thought about that. He hoped that day wouldn't come for many years, not until he had some hair on his chest and friends in every town in the southwest and could hit an antelope ten out of ten times. It was going to be a long ride, especially with a pack donkey beside them, and Ben screwed up his courage, a different kind of courage than heading into a dangerous situation, to ask the woman the question he'd wanted to ask since she first rode into town. Miss Lorelei, he began. Yes. May I ask you a question? She didn't look back. That's a question. May I ask another one? There's your second. That wasn't particularly funny, so he just blurted it out. What happened to your face? She paused for a long second. You got a gander, huh? Pretty sight. No, ma'am, but you told that man Girk that... Story suited the situation, Ben. I know that, but... You want to know the truth? she asked, and there was flint in her words. I cut myself shaving. Ben swallowed, swallowed down his curiosity and his disappointment at her answer. Many times the teachers and nuns at the orphanage had been unwilling, or unable, to answer certain questions the boys put to them, and would deflect them with a, a fine question for another time, or ours is not to know or a simple gayate. He didn't know why I expected better from Lorelei Scruggs. But he had. He didn't speak for an hour. Or at least it felt like an hour. Finally, he asked another question. Do you have any children of your own? Me? She said and laughed. But it was not a cheerful laugh. It was a bitter one. No, sir, those days are behind me, it would seem. Ben wanted her to elaborate, but she didn't. Did Senor Cook have any children? As a matter of fact, he did. There's a daughter out there, and God knows how many sons. Ben knew what she must mean. A lot of the orphans he'd grown up with had been bastards. Maybe even Ben had been. He supposed he'd never know. Do they... do they miss him? Huh? Are they waiting for him to come home? Waiting because they don't know he's dead? I reckon the girl is. She's younger than you, by a year or so. But she didn't have much contact with him. Her mama was... Well, she didn't cotton to the gunslinger-for-hire life once she was a mama instead of just... You know. Ben didn't know. Each question he asked brought to mind several more. What's her name? The mother or the daughter? The daughter. Anna. She's smart, that girl. Gonna be somebody. Like her daddy was. Ben didn't figure that was too unbelievable, considering who he was riding with. 
Again, he thought back on the loveliness of the face he had glimpsed beneath the veil. Only the one side, of course. Her shapely figure, when she wasn't dressed as a man. Her soft voice. And then he thought of the reaction of the two men who'd seen her without the veil. The fear on Dallas Girk's already illness-strained face. He mulled it over for a time, watching the lizards scatter on the trail before them. They rode on. He asked one more question. Do you know any songs? Ben, my singing voice can scare off a grizzly bear. You don't want to hear it, unless you've got a toothache. What does a toothache have to do? Because your ears will hurt more than your mouth. He thought he was supposed to laugh at that, but he didn't. She had a nice voice when speaking. There was no way it wouldn't be so when singing. Why, kid, do you know any songs? Well, sure. Then shut up and start singing. That he did laugh at. But a moment later, he began to sing. Softly at first, but grew bolder as he went. Estas son las mañanitas que cantaba el rey David. It was a Mexican folk song everybody knew at the orphanage, and one of the kinder nuns, Hermana Goya, had sung it to sick children, and had it sung at her funeral. A brown fox lifted its head and watched them as they rode by, and Lorelei Scruggs shed a tear or two under the veil that Benny never saw or would ever suspect. When he was done, she asked him to practice Spanish with her, and they went through numbers, words for colors, and things they saw in front of them. Ben briefly considered teaching her an impolite word in place of a regular one, but didn't think that would end well for a woman on her own. He didn't relish the thought of people angry with Lorelei, especially over a silly prank. And he pondered that realization. He cared what people thought of her and how she was treated, even if they weren't together. Like a friend, only different. They passed through a small village, where Ben was able to show off his admittedly limited Spanish, rested and watered the mounts and themselves, then moved on, eager to near Phoenix before nightfall. Lorelei had a map of Arizona in her saddlebag, and she fished it out to study it. Hard to see anything but hills, he said, for lack of something to contribute. You should go to Nebraska sometime, Lorelei muttered. It's flat from horizon to horizon. I read about Nebraska in The Lean Rider and the Field of Flames, Ben recalled. I must have missed that one. She didn't sound particularly interested in chatting. The donkey brayed behind them, and they slowed, allowing it to catch up. Pony's ears twitched as a big fly buzzed around them, and Ben shooed it away. He patted his little horse on the mane. In the distance, the horizon shimmered, but experience had taught him there was no water there. "'How far is it to Phoenix?' Ben asked. "'It'll be night by then,' she said. "'We should make camp somewhere comfortable, then get going before dawn tomorrow.' Ben realized, a little late, that he hadn't packed a bedroll, just a blanket on the back of his pony. But, it turned out, Lorelei had packed two bedrolls, an extra pillow, and a third canteen of water.
just in case Ben forgot his. He looked at her profile as she untied the donkey, trying to spy that pretty face he'd glimpsed once before. He should have been used to being on his own, taking care of himself, but here he was depending on someone, letting her take care of him. He wasn't embarrassed. He liked it. He felt warm to know she had... He felt warm inside to know she had thought of his comfort. It made him want to take care of her back in some way, to prove his usefulness. But what could he do? He was a boy. He couldn't shoot. He couldn't fight. He couldn't even cook. Maybe someone would speak Spanish, in a moment of importance, and he'd come in handy then. But beyond that, he was lucky if he could ride well enough to keep up. What did he have to offer? Um, do you want me to sing another song? She paused, shrugged. He didn't know how to take that, so he fed Pony some oats from his pack and hummed Camp Town Races quietly. You gather up wood for a fire, okay? Lorelai said, and Ben hopped to it, eager to please. He could start a fire with matches or flint, but he had neither. He resolved to make a list of supplies he'd need the next time they went out on a... a mission? An expedition? An adventure, maybe? But for now, he could gather wood, and lots of it. Mostly there was sagebrush, and he found a colony of fire ants living in half of what he gathered. But the wood was enough, and Lorelei had flint and tinder, and let him use it to build the fire. They had smoked pork that didn't need cooking, but it tasted better warm. She also had some coffee to brew, but there was something wrong with it, because it tasted sour and burnt to Ben's taste buds. Do you have a plan? He asked her when his belly was full. You ask a lot of questions. I'll bet your teacher loves you. Ben went quiet. He thought he might go find a place to relieve himself before it got too dark. Lorelai chewed and swallowed. We get to Phoenix at first light, take out the Donovans before they're even awake. How? Depends on how they're set up. If they've got a compound, a bunch of friends keeping watch, it'll be slower going. If we're lucky, they'll be snoring away when I bust in. Ben didn't think they'd get lucky twice in a row. But then, the stories about the lean rider always had a line where the bad guy just happened to be in the privy, or just happened to have a fear of spiders, or just happened to be passed out in the arms of a bear-sized Russian dancer, who just happened to owe Jerome Cook a favor. Seems the only time he'd ever had bad luck was when the rider had been saddled with Benny Parks. They ate some cornbread Ms. Aubrey had made them, and then Lorelei said it was time to hit the sack. Can you sleep when it's still light out, kid? I... I don't know. I've never tried it before. You think wearing one of my veils will help? Ben didn't know if she was joking or serious. He'd feel funny wearing something that belonged to a lady. But he'd also feel funny getting shut-eye with the sun still up. No, I'll be okay, Ben said. But he wasn't tired. She'd given him coffee, and now he was wide awake. She, apparently, could sleep at any time, day or night, and suggested he gather up more firewood, and then practice his knots, and then study the map if he still wasn't tired. She laid back in her sleeping bag, telling him good night, 
and not laughing when he said, Good late afternoon, back to her. He watched her for a while, unable to tell if she was asleep or awake. Her chest rose and fell, slowly, and her breathing made no sound. Ben finally lay back on his own bedroll, a thin blanket over the top of him, and stared up at the blue, cloudless sky. He admired that Lorelei could just go to sleep whenever she felt like it, but his nerves wouldn't let him do the same. She'd mentioned the possibility of the Donovan brothers having a gang of cohorts. What if there were twenty armed men, paid to look out for visitors, and they spied them, surrounded them, realized why a woman and a kid were there? Ben knew that many men liked to hurt women. That was where several of his fellow orphans had come from. The idea that one or more would put his hands on Lorelei Scruggs, it made his hands ball into little fists, completely of their own volition. He was ruminating on this when he finally began to doze, and was dead to the world until something crawled over his face, waking him, causing him to thrash and shake. The sun's light was just vanishing over the hills, but it wasn't too dim to see his assailant. It was a big brown cricket, the size of his whole middle finger, perched right on his lower lip. But in the post-sundown haze, it could have been anything. A tarantula, a scorpion, a gila monster. He shrieked, flailed, and brushed it off. "'Benny!' cried Lorelei, and sat up in her bedroll. She had a pistol in her hand, her arm extended, and the veil had come off. Ben sucked in air through his teeth. The entire right side of her face was a mass of purple scar tissue, as though she had been skinned. One side of her nose was cut, one eyebrow gone, one cheekbone visible. Part of her scalp had been sliced, including the tip of her ear. It was ghastly, like a rotting corpse brought back to life. But the other half of her face, more than half, really, because her chin and most of the forehead was untouched, was as beautiful as an Italian painting in an art book. Ben stared for a moment, and she said, What is it? What happened? Then she touched her mangled cheek and realized what he was seeing, the look of fear and revulsion on his young face. She grunted, a most unladylike sound, and picked up the veil from beside her pillow. She shook it once and put it back over her face, like a train robber replacing his mask. I'm sorry, Ben said quietly. There was something crawling on my... on my face, and I thought it was... What? she said, sounding angry, or annoyed, or simply tired, or all three. A spider or something, Ben muttered, his eyes averted. It was just a grasshopper. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am, I didn't... Forget about it, Ben, she said, laying back down. If you're able. Ben felt embarrassed, ashamed, and a little bit sick. He saw the huge cricket starting to crawl away, and smashed it with one quick fist. Ben thought it would be even harder to go to sleep now. But his body must have been wound down from before, for he closed his eyes and didn't know anything until he was being shaken awake in the darkness of post-midnight. 14. 
Ben wasn't exactly privy to every detail of her plan. In the dozen or so adventures he'd read about, over and over again, the lean rider would always tell his young companion about his plan, so there would be no confusion once the shooting started. Ben wondered, not for the first time, precisely how true those little cuentos were. Although the boy had a pretty weak sense of direction, Lorelei was unwavering, seeming to know which way to ride, even though she'd never been to Phoenix, let alone come this way before. They rode through the night, and after an hour, the east started turning a little blue, then purple, and soon there was lovely pink and red sky announcing the sunrise. Phoenix lay in the distance, a much bigger city than Ben had ever seen. He was no longer tired. In fact, he felt like he could walk the rest of the way, just to give Pony a break. Lorelei seemed to be agitated, because she kept moving faster than Ben and the donkey could go. She'd have to pause and wait for them to catch up, and he'd feel impatience baking off her as she studied the map the railroad man in New Mexico had sent them. Then they'd get moving again, adjusting their angle. The third time this happened, she was no longer holding the map, but was checking her guns when Ben reached her. They were on a slight ridge, and to the south lay two or three homesteads, one adobe and two of wood. "'There it is!' she said, and Ben nodded. "'Adobe house, dead tree just beyond the gate.' That's what Mr. Meldrum's letter had said, anyway. "'Any chance there's another house just like this around here?' he asked. He imagined kicking in the door, guns blazing, revealing a family of innocent farmers getting sent to meet their maker. "'We'll see.' The letter said something about horseshoes nailed to the gate. If they're there, this is it. Ben nodded, sang a nervous prayer in his head. Lorelei indicated a half-felled signpost right behind them. We'll leave the donkey and your pony here, tied to that post. I'll ride down and check it out. Then we'll make our move. The sun was up now, and long shadows stretched across the cold ground. Even so, Ben felt sweat tickling the back of his neck. What do you want me to do? She scanned the area between the ridge and the homestead. You see that rock? she asked. Though it was so big, a blind man wouldn't have missed it. You get behind it, with your rifle at the ready. You're my lookout. I'll double back to it, to your rock, and will leave my horse there and sneak closer for the ambush. Ben's bladder suddenly felt very full. What are you going to do? Just knock on the door and see who comes out? You know, that's not a bad idea, she said, seeming impressed. All right, we'll do it that way. He couldn't tell if she was making fun of him, or if it truly struck her as a solid plan. So Ben used his barely passable knot-tying skills to secure Pony and the donkey to the broken signpost. Part of the word phoenix could still be found half-buried in sand by his feet. Then he followed his friend down toward the homestead. As she went on, Ben hunkered down behind the big, buffalo-sized rock and prepared his rifle. It was only a couple of years old and had been well-maintained. He checked that it was loaded, took a deep breath, and leveled it toward the homestead 
resting the long barrel on the stone. He sighted on the dead tree, the outhouse, the gate, and finally on the front door. It wasn't far enough away he wouldn't be able to hear Lorelai call for him to shoot, but any whispered or muttered conversations would be lost to him. He had practiced with the rifle, and gotten pretty good with it, but now he wished he had practiced more, instead of eating, or sleeping, or going to school. Could he shoot a man with it if he needed to? And was he supposed to kill whoever came out of the front door, or only wound them? She hadn't said. He needed her to tell him what to do. What if he missed, and the bad guy shot Lorelai? What if he missed and shot Lorelai himself? His hand felt sweaty on the trigger, and he wiped it on his pants. Lorelai was riding up to the gate now, and she gave Ben a wave, then pointed to the door. He assumed that meant the horseshoes were there, and this was the right place. Now she'd come back, and the front door opened. A man came out, shirtless, and closed the door behind him. He was young, heavy-set, and when he started walking, Ben recognized him as Leonard Donovan, the younger, technically less valuable brother. He never looked at the woman, but moved sleepily toward the toilet. Lorelai and her horse were frozen where they stood. She wasn't even facing the outhouse, and remained still as he got to it and reached for the door. Ben didn't know if she had made a sound, or if the horse had nickered, or if Donovan saw her shadow in the corner of his eye, but he turned their way. Uh, he began, confused and still groggy. Quick as a wink, Lorelai drew her sidearm, at the same time dismounting and raising her pistol toward the outlaw. Shh, Ben barely heard her say. Oh, shit, grumbled Leonard Donovan, and then began to shout. Johnny! There's a woman here wanting to shoot me. Johnny! Ben had his rifle trained on the man, but now he thought he ought to focus on the front door instead. Lorelai had her pistol aimed at the shirtless, unarmed one, so Ben waited for the older brother to come out. Lenny, you all right? A man shouted from inside. Yeah, said the one outside. She ain't shot me yet. Must want to take us alive. She pretty, Johnny called. Maybe she just wants some company. Oh, hard to say. She's got a mask on. Swearing came from inside the adobe structure. Are you trying to be funny? Ain't no joke, Johnny, Leonard shouted. She got a gun, but she's alone. Shut up, said Lorelai, inching closer to him, though the gate was separating the pair. She called but didn't turn toward Benny. Ben, you make sure you got him. Don't say anything, but shoot Lenny here if he makes a run for it. Ben again trained his rifle on the man by the outhouse. But now he was worried about the door. Maybe it would burst open and the other brother would come out shooting, and Ben could stop that if he was only aiming in the right direction. Behind the house, Ben saw movement. It was on the same side as the privy, and the boy turned his rifle toward it. It was a woman, wearing only underwear, if that, and making a run for it, barefoot, away from the danger. He decided she wasn't a threat. 
and turned the sights back to the front door. Back door! Ben shouted to Lorelai. She kept moving toward Leonard, still pointing her pistol his way. Leonard squinted in Ben's direction, not quite spotting him, but scanning the area for where he was. Johnny, there's another one, he called to his brother. Sounds like another lady, or a kid. Johnny didn't respond. I said shut up, Lorelai growled, looking at the front door, then the side, where the half-naked woman had retreated. Ben could see her still moving, though she must have stepped on something, because she was now walking instead of running, and walking funny. In the moment Lorelai's attention was off him, Leonard Donovan started to move. He wrenched open the outhouse door and reached for something inside. A shot rang out. Ben looked away from his rifle now, taking in what was happening. Lorelai's pistol was back, pointing at the heavy Donovan, and though he was too far away to see it, Ben guessed smoke was coming from the barrel. Leonard gasped, grabbed his leg. I told you to shut up, Lorelai said, which wasn't quite worthy of a dime novel, but wasn't half bad. My ass, Donovan hissed. You shot me in the... Ben could see blood spreading out in a dark spot right around the outlaw's thigh, staining his long johns black. Turn slowly, Lorelai said, stepping even closer. Close the door behind you. Ben glanced back at the front door of the house, still closed, and made sure his rifle was ready. The house was silent, and he was starting to worry about John Donovan. He could have crept to one of the windows and be leveling a pistol at Lorelei right now. But Ben wasn't able to see any. He caught movement. There was something behind the dead tree in the yard. Somehow, the older Donovan had sneaked around the other side of the house, maybe on all fours, and was nearly within rock-throwing distance, let alone pistol-firing range. Ben didn't think. He just fired. The rifle kicked against his shoulder, a shoulder that was still sore from practice, and one of the tree's dead limbs gave way. Johnny Donovan fired twice with his pistol and was on his feet, running back toward the far side of the house. Ben could have shot at him again, but he was worried about Lorelai. She was hunkered down, keeping the fence between her and the outlaw, the armed one anyway, and she appeared to be unhurt. The outhouse door came open again, and Leonard, though injured, managed to get inside and step out with a shotgun in his hand. Ben didn't realize he had done it, but suddenly the rifle was kicking once again. He didn't know if he meant to wound him or disarm him, but a silver dollar-sized hole appeared in his bare chest, and the man lowered the shotgun, almost gently, to the ground. Leonard Donovan looked down at the wound in his flesh, the blood just now starting to flow. Johnny? he gasped. And then, as though his knees had stopped working, he toppled forward onto his face. Lorelai was up again, pushing through the gate and standing above him. Ben, she called, not looking. You keep a lookout for the other one. We'll get this one on my horse for the ride back to Trueno. But his brother, Ben began, stay there. Leave the other one to me. Ben was more than happy to obey. He scrutinized the window the door, and both sides of the house. Nothing. Is he dead? Ben called. Yes, sir, she called back. Ben swallowed. 
He hadn't known how he would feel in this situation. But the man had had a shotgun. Even so, the image of that section missing from his chest, like a particularly nasty new belly button. Ben didn't think that would be vacating his mind any time soon. A shot rang out, and Ben felt, rather than heard, the bullet hit the rock in front of him and ricochet off. He ducked down, and when he did, he heard another shot coming from the house, but no impact. He cowered there for a moment, wanting to move, wanting to see if he could help, but afraid of another bullet coming his way, opening up a new belly button in him. Ben heard hoofbeats, and Johnny Donovan shouted, This is for my brother! Another gunshot, and a noise, a strange pained sound Ben couldn't identify. He had to move, had to get his rifle up and shoot the man. Ben sat up again, pointing the rifle forward. Donovan was riding a spotted white horse toward the boy, looking back at the homestead. Lorelai was nowhere to be seen, but the outlaw fired his pistol again, and it was pointed back at the house. A shot came back, and Ben could see an arm behind the privy, firing Lorelai's six-shooter, and felt some measure of relief that she was still shooting. That relief was small comfort, though, since Johnny Donovan was riding in his direction and was obviously in a killing mood. Ben aimed the rifle just as Donovan faced forward again, raising his pistol toward him. Ben squeezed the trigger, and the blast knocked him back a little. The bullet completely missed its target, though it did take a juicy red chunk out of the white horse's ear. The horse reared as Ben fumbled with the bolt to eject the cartridge. Donovan got the horse under control again, whoaing it, and another pistol shot rang out as Lorelai ran out from her cover, firing at him. Ben didn't know if she got closer to her target than he had, but Donovan was not hit. Ben raised the rifle again, but Donovan shot at him, too high, and he ducked down again behind the rock. He squatted there, listening to hear from which side the outlaw would come, hoping desperately he could get a shot off in time. Ben also had to relieve himself something awful, even though he had gone less than an hour before. He heard Donovan egg on his horse and the sound of hoof-falls, but it was not nearing him. He rose up just enough to see the man racing off to the south, away from him and Lorelei. He didn't appear to have a scratch on him. Ben glanced back at Lorelei Scruggs, who was standing by the fence, and cursed himself for not trying to get off one last shot while the outlaw was near enough to, maybe, hit. He rose and waved at the woman. "'Are you okay?' he called. "'Yeah,' she mumbled, looking down at something. Ben stepped around the rock and saw it. Her horse lay dead where she'd tied it, a big gray lump in the weeds. "'Your horse!' Ben exclaimed stupidly. Lorelai took the name of the Lord and gave her horse a kick. Ben was upset by that, but couldn't say why. She glanced back at him and said, Stay there, Benny. Then she knelt down and patted the horse on the neck, very gently. Ben wanted to approach and couldn't figure out why she wouldn't let him move from where... He saw her shoulders hitch and understood. He turned away, scanning the south for Donovan. There was dust where he'd stirred it up, but he had turned west now and was now just a speck in the distance. 
Ben looked back at the homestead, wondering what became of the half-clothed girl. But there was no sign of her. Ben didn't know if he should be nervous about that or not. He slowly approached the dead horse and its weeping owner. He could imagine how he'd feel if something happened to Pony, and turned to look behind him to check. But the other two animals were still behind the ridge there, and it was unlikely Donovan knew about them. Ben, why don't you go back and get the other two mounts? Lorelei said, sniffling. Ben nodded and headed that way. He did carry the rifle, and readied it as he ascended the hill. But the donkey and horse were still contentedly tied to their post, the donkey's tail twitching at early morning insects. Ben put his rifle in Pony's saddle and led them over the ridge and back to the homestead. His adrenaline had worn off now, and he felt like lying down, taking a nap for twelve or more hours. Lorelei had stood and was trying to go through the front door of the homestead, but it was barred shut. She glanced back at Ben, signaling him to the fence. Get my saddle put on the donkey, will you? Then she went around the house and entered through the back door. Ben had a devil of a time getting the straps undone on the saddle, mostly because the dead horse was on top of it. But eventually, he worked it loose and was able to drag it out from under the big animal. By this point, Lorelei had opened the front door and stepped into the daylight, readjusting the veil she wore, and apparently took off inside. Ben, go in, look around, take what you want. From the house? But... He began, and didn't finish. If he didn't take the valuables, someone else would. Or John Donovan would return here and get them himself. Although that didn't seem likely. Once he knew somebody discovered his hideout, a wanted man like that would move on, and never look back. Ben didn't find much of value in the house. There was a belt buckle with a bison on it, maybe made of silver, so he attached it to his own belt like a badge of honor. Everything else he left. When the boy came out, the daylight was too bright, and Lorelei was standing over by Pony, where she'd tied a blanket, a bag of something from inside the house, and the fallen man's shotgun. There was blood on the saddle, and Lorelei's left sleeve was stained with it. Ben thought it came from the dead man, but he still lay there in the dirt where he'd fallen his lifeblood trapped under him. Lorelai? Did you get shot? Nah, she said, patting the pony's head and starting on the donkey. Not much. He snorted. What a strange way to answer. But when she struggled with her saddle, Ben reconsidered. He ran over beside her. There was wet blood running down her wrist and a hole in the sleeve of her duster where it did appear she'd been shot. Oh, no, Ben gasped. Is it bad? Nope, doesn't even hurt. He didn't know if he believed her or not, especially when she needed help putting her saddle onto the donkey. But he had never been shot and wasn't sure if it would hurt or not. Heck, even Jerome Cook had acted like he didn't know he'd been fatally injured. Do you... You want me to bandage it up or something? Sure, she said, which surprised him. 
She struck him as someone unlikely to ask for help. I saw a couple of nice blouses in there. You want to grab one and wrap me up nice and tight? Is that, like, a thing for your hair? What? Lorelai said absently, looking around the horizon in case their friend came back. It's a woman's shirt. Oh! Ben didn't understand how putting a blouse on could help, but it turned out she wanted him to tear the material and wrap it over the gunshot wound, which looked terrible. It had passed in one side and out the other, but she claimed didn't even paint her that much. Then they took the donkey over to where the outlaw's body lay. Leonard Donovan was a portly man, and it was quite a struggle getting him onto the donkey. He weighed more than the two of them put together. Furthermore, he had been shirtless, and it disturbed Ben to touch his skin, which felt wet even where there was no blood. Finally, Lorelai sighed and said, We could just drag him behind us to Phoenix. It's not even an hour away. Drag him? The body? Either that or we just cut off his head and take that in to claim the bounty. Ben drew in a quick breath, feeling dizzy. She may only have been joshing, but they wrapped Donovan in the blankets from the two beds inside the house. Then Ben tied the big, wrapped bundle to the donkey's saddle, which had been Lorelai's horse's saddle. You know, she said, surveying the house, there's a chance they were just squatting here, or all this belonged to someone else. In which case, it's a shame we're taking their blankets and liquor. Oh, Ben said, worried about someone coming back and finding the place ransacked. But that was still better than coming back to find some armed criminals inside, he figured. 15. The ride to Phoenix was a short one, but Ben had plenty of time to go over what had happened in his mind. The rifle shot, the expression on Leonard Donovan's face, the river of blood that had gushed out. The boy thought he might retch, but even that would have been a release. This was something else. You okay, kid? He took a minute before answering. Maybe he could have just wounded the man, or shot the gun out of his hand, or fired one of those warning shots you read about in pirate books. Get him to throw down his weapon and surrender. But Ben hadn't thought. Hadn't planned it out. He'd just acted. No, he whispered. Ben? He looked up. The veil was turned toward him, but there might have been frustration, or anger, or curiosity, or worry behind it. They called murder un pecado mortal, he told her, remembering the sermons, the nuns and Padre Puente offering unsettling previews of the afterlife. Who called it what? A mortal sin, the kind there's no forgiveness for. Lorelai exhaled loudly. I absolve you, kid. It's like war. Ain't murder in a war. Ben supposed that might be true, but it did little to help his attitude. You feel bad, I understand, she said. But remember, you feel bad about shooting the outlaw with the shotgun, not Abe Lincoln. Well, that was true. They rode on, 
The sun was baking down on them already, even though it was still early. Ben felt the rivulets of sweat start in his forehead and work their way down his face and neck before going into hiding in his shirt. He focused on the heat instead of the guilt. That was preferable. First man I ever killed? That stayed with me a while, Lorelei remembered. For years, I guess. Sometimes even now I... She stopped herself, seemingly aware of the effect her memory was having on him. But hey, mine wasn't a wanted criminal, and it was with a shovel, not a fast, clean bullet. Ben forgot about the sun. A shovel? What happened? Yeah, not the sweetest story in the world. I'll tell you the whole thing. Now Ben's mind turned outward instead of dwelling on himself, and he remembered she'd been shot. You feeling bad? Your arm? Oh, Benny, I feel like three gallons stuffed into a one-gallon barrel. He nodded, but then he thought about it. What would that mean, exactly? It sounded like the sort of thing you'd say after a huge, greedy meal or drinking some bad water. Lorelei certainly wasn't fat, and how would you fit more than a gallon in a one-gallon barrel? He turned it over and over in his mind for the next few minutes. A nice break from feeling guilty and worried for his soul. For that, he was grateful. Okay, so... That's it. That's where we're going to stop for today. So the episode that I finished editing today was the third section of A Sidekick's Journey. And I can't decide whether what I'm recording right now should take its place and that episode should become the fourth episode or not. Because when I edited it, edited it today... I realized that it's generalities that I'm talking about because I didn't know where I was going to break up the story. And I thought, well, there's a couple of things I'd like to talk about from this section of the book, but it only works in hindsight where I know where that, what part of the story was going to be presented in that episode. So either I took the beginning of the third section of Sidekick's Journey and then put this part in, in place of the post section, and bumped that to the fourth section, or I'll replace the whole third episode, the clip, the, the, the segment of the story, with the fourth. And even though it'll say, oh, this is the third, maybe I'll dub in the fourth in a funny voice or something like that. Just seems like that's what I wanted to do. I think in the very first episode of Sidekick's Journey, I said, well, in the next episode, I will tell you why I wrote a sequel to Birth of a Sidekick. Very, very briefly, 2005, I wrote Birth of a Sidekick. Big Anklevich liked it. Years later, I published Birth of a Sidekick, and a couple of people liked it, and I decided to run it on the Rish Outcast, and more people liked it than had originally. 
And around that time, I started thinking about Ben Parks and what became of him, because the first story was self-contained. The first story ended with uh, the animal house thing. I know I talked about that already. That tells you that Ben grew up and he became famous in his own right. So it didn't need a sequel. But I enjoyed doing the audiobook. I enjoyed revisiting this story 10 years later, nine years later, however long it was. Then, yeah, in 2015, I thought I would write a follow-up, a fun little follow-up story. I jotted down a couple of notes of what was going to happen in that story, and then I went to a writer's conference, the one that made me so excited, that made me think I could be a real writer, that made me think I could be someone, be someone. Be someone, be someone. And somebody, David Farland, I think, said, you've got to give your character a goal. And if they achieve that goal, then that, there's your short story. But if they fail, and then they try again, and they fail again to achieve that goal, that's a novel. A novel is somebody trying to accomplish something, and they keep hitting obstacles, and they keep not succeeding. And I thought about that, and I thought, well, do I want to write a fun vignette for Ben Parks, or do I want to write a novel? And so I sort of threw out the ideas that I had for this Ben Parks story and tried to write one with more obstacles. And uh, I, I don't think we've gotten to most of those obstacles at this point, if this is the third section of that story. Although, uh, it's hard to say. I'm not as intimately familiar with this story as you guys are, because you just heard it. And I haven't heard it in a long, long time. But I wrote a second adventure for Ben Parks, and it was bigger than the first one, but it was very satisfying. It, was, it felt good to revisit this. It's not something that I do very often is write sequels to my work. And that's a flaw, I think, because people like to get to know characters and then catch up with them again and go along with them on a fun adventure or a mystery or a new enemy to fight. And uh, I didn't do that much. But in writing this, in writing A Sidekick's Journey, I not only wrote a second installment, but I, I had ideas for a third. And I asked Big, what should I call this series? And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, when I publish it on Amazon, it wants to know the name of the series. You know, you, so this is A Sidekick's Journey. And Big said, journey of a sidekick. They all have to be blank of a sidekick, remember? And I, I said, well, what should I call it? And he said, maybe Ben Parks Chronicles, the Chronicles of a Sidekick. And yeah, I took it and turned it into the Sidekick Chronicles. And I thought, yeah, there you go. That's what this series is called. And so this is the second segment of who knows? How many? Spoiler alert, 
No, don't say spoiler alert. I hate the people that say spoiler alert. F***ers. I have written four stories in the Sidekick Chronicles as of this recording. But it's problematic. We'll talk about it in the last episode. Anyhow, oh, hey, well, here's one thing that I did want to talk about in, uh, from the section that you just heard. So the Donovan brothers, right? The introduction of the Donovan brothers is that somebody writes Jerome Cook a letter and it's got wanted posters for these two brothers, for John and Len Donovan, right? Lenny Donovan? Leonard? I can't remember. And there's a reward for their capture or their whatever you call it. The point being, they're wanted dead or alive. There's a reward for them dead or alive. That's really interesting to me. The idea that whoever is posting the reward doesn't care if they are alive or they are dead. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the George R. R. Martin Song of Ice and Fire series. And often in those books, Somebody wants the head of their enemy. They want somebody to bring them the head of so-and-so. And that is so strange. It's like Cersei Lannister wants the head of Tyrion. And, there, and, and, and there's a big reward for it. And so a bunch of people try and cash in on that, despite not having killed Tyrion. And... It just, it didn't make any sense to me that if you hated somebody as much as she hates him, you wouldn't just want his head. You would want that person brought back in chains so that you could make it long and painful, drawn out, your vengeance or justice or whatever you want to call it. But to just have somebody bring you his head, and that, that keeps happening through those books. I don't know. To me, there's something about looking somebody in the eye and telling them, you know, that they're going to die or telling them that justice is now served or I paid a lot of money to get you brought here and now you're never going to go free or, you know, whatever it is. Maybe I'm cruel in that way, but it just doesn't feel like justice to know that some mercenary killed this guy, hacked off his head and brought it to me. Are the signs, the wanted, dead or alive, the Bon Jovi song, is that actually historically accurate? Were there wanted signs that said that? Was that just run of the mill? Or was that only for the most notorious outlaws? Or maybe they only did that once or twice. You know, it's like Jesse James, wanted, dead or alive. But it's something that we have embraced because of the fictional Wild West that was from the 20th century. I don't know. So many times, and it's not just in Westerns, but in all sorts of writing, you'll have people who are captured and then they escape. And, you know, and they've been brought to justice and then they escape. And you know, there are people, famous criminals that did, that escaped, that had been jailed and they escaped. No jail can hold me. Maybe because of something like that. It was like, okay, this guy has been in. You hear that train? Should I wait or should I just keep talking? Vote for me. 
If you want me to wait until the train is gone, say I. Wow, I didn't hear a damn thing. I'm just going to keep talking then. But yeah, it may be that one of those guys broke out of jail three or four times and then wanted posters started to say wanted dead or alive. But I also wonder if, gosh, what was it? There was something, oh, it was the Dark Knight, where there was like a $100,000 reward for the Joker dead, $200,000 for the Joker alive so that you could really make him suffer. I dug that. And, and maybe that's kind of in support of my idea of revenge or justice or retribution or whatever you want to call it. You just, like These guys want to be able to deal out this person's death their way. But I don't know. It, it may also be that in those days on the frontier when the world was more dangerous, well, in the Wild West, right? That there are townsfolk and villagers and all that stuff that needed to see this guy hang, that needed to see justice get meted out because it told them that crime doesn't pay. It told them that, hey, even out here, law means something. I don't know, maybe... I am talking out of my butt. Do you know a lot of people that can talk out of their butts? I mean, I, like, I have a cousin who can burp the alphabet, but to actually talk out of your... Oh, okay. Do you hear that? Americana by Kevin MacLeod. <laughs> I guess that means that it's time to uh, bring this to a close. Thank you for listening to The Rish Outcast. Thank you for listening to A Sidekick's Journey. I hope you have been enjoying it. I've been enjoying bringing it to you. I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at asking for money, at asking people to like my show, to give it a good review on iTunes, to... I don't know, share it with somebody that you think might like it. See, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's an acquired taste. It's not for everybody. I don't know what I want to give it to your brother or not. But there's the Patreon fund. And it's something that I have come to depend on. I've had a hard time money-wise this summer. I, I started doing a whole episode about it just the other day. And that has not yet aired. But it will sometime soon. Where we talk about my money woes. Yeah, that, that's something to look forward to. Now, it's, it's not just an episode about that. It's, it's a plug for another book, one that I haven't even sat down to record yet. But the Patreon thing is really great. I, I, I know that I'm a really, really small fish when I look at my Patreon page versus other people. Sometimes that bums me out. I would love to have more money. I would love to have it just coming in like crazy. Big and I used to talk about that in the Doomsday days of, you know, what if this thing took off? What if, oh my gosh, you know, our listenership doubled, tripled, oh, quadrupled, oh. What if we could do this as a job? What if you wouldn't have to go to work at the news station? I wouldn't have to get fired from whatever job was about to fire me? 
and we could just be podcasters. Wouldn't that be awesome? And uh, that never happened. And eventually, it just became hard to find the time to do that show. But I do think about how it would be if I had enough Patreon supporters that I could look at it as a form of income, not you know my chief form of income, although there are certainly people out there that are like that, but just be able to plan on it and say, okay, if I did four episodes this month, that would be X number of dollars. Okay, that means fill in the blank. That, that means something good. That means freedom. It means comfort. It means that you know that you're going to have that money at the end of the month. And that's nice. The, the way it is now, yeah, I can, I can eat out on the Rich Outcast. But sometimes, because the number is so small, it's not my number one priority. There are other things that I will do with my time. Things that are fun. Things that are easy. Not that this show is not fun. But you know what I mean. Sometimes artistic endeavors require effort. And sweat or initiative or just, okay, instead of going to sleep, I'm going to work for another hour. And so I guess that's a roundabout way of saying if you like what I do and you would like to hear more of it or if I have made you laugh or some other thing that affects people, consider supporting me on Patreon, rewarding me on Patreon, I guess. My computer is such crap. I, uh, my mom came over, was it yesterday? She says, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm trying to print these labels. And she's like, what's the problem? And I, Nothing, I've just been sitting here a half hour and it still hasn't printed. And she says, well, you need to get yourself a new computer. I mean, that you've had this computer for so and so many years and you're always complaining about it. And I thought, yeah, I do need to get a new computer. But while we're at it, you know, I need to live forever. I need to be able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. I need uh, much more impressive genitals. Yeah, these things don't just happen. And so I guess, yeah, this is the lengthiest plea for Patreon support since I did a whole episode about my Patreon. <laughs> because I, I hate asking for donate on the dune steve i hated it we would try and make jokes out of it or whatever but i still i wanted to do it like every fourth episode and there are so many podcasters that just they do it they don't care how it sounds it's part of the show they have a script or they you know they just make themselves do it or maybe they enjoy doing it because they actually get donations i don't enjoy that part of the show but now it's done and if you have supported me on Patreon or you will support me on Patreon, holy cow, thank you so much. I found an episode the other day on the little disc, whatever you call the things that I record on, micro SD card. And it was supposed to be the first incentive episode for my Patreon supporters. And it was recorded in like early 2017. It's like, okay, I just started my Patreon and I thought I would reward you guys. So here we go. And I had forgotten that that episode even existed. And so uh, that's out there <laughs> waiting to drop. 
And yeah, more Ben Parks adventures are out there waiting to drop too. Thank you again for listening. Thanks for liking the things that I do. Thanks for liking me. I like you too. Good night. Yes, yes. The show you have just listened to is produced under what's known as a Creative Commons 3.0 license, in which you are free to download and share the files as you like, but you cannot change them, take credit for them, or attempt to sell them. Oh, and thanks to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for his music. Have a nice night. I'm terrible at this. Not the podcasting thing, although that's probably applicable. But I'm terrible at asking people. Look, bring me that motorcyclist. $50 dead, $100 alive. The credits start to roll, or I think that one had an Anya song. God damn it. Sprinklers just came on. Shoot. sets their sprinklers to go off at 11 p.m. Well, you got an outtake there.